And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, Teacher, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, See that you are not led astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. The Gospel according to St. Luke, chapter 21, verses 16 through 19. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Please be seated. I would at this point like to remind our younger saints that Miss Hannah has graciously provided an excellent outline to begin a practice of of taking notes for the sermon. So if you don't have one now, um, maybe you can go get one or or just try next week. We're trying to to fill these out. I've, I've already had some, some of our sweet kiddos come and bring me their notes afterwards, and they're typically much better than the notes I would have taken, so um, they're, they're, they're pretty good, so I just want to mention that. Well, this morning, I'd like to begin um, with a question that I'd like each of us to consider. That's not a test. I'm not grading you, but I want us to take a moment to consider this question. What is a temple? What is a temple? Well, in a sense, I suppose answering that question depends on the context, right? If you're at a gym and your physical fitness enthusiast buddy uh, tries to defend his fussy diet, he might say, listen, bro, my body is a temple, right? That might be one way of defining it. Or if I'm asking one of my Jewish friends, they'll say that on Shabbat they go to temple, right? Or if you're reading some Homer, A temple seems to be that place where you try to trick your God into doing what you want so that he won't strike you down with some deadly illness. So there's a few different ways you could answer the question, what is a temple? Well, for King David, he first conceived of the temple as a matter of propriety, a matter of respect. We read in 2 Samuel 7, Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See, now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. It was out of his devotion to the Lord, as a fruit of that devotion and piety and loyalty to Yahweh, that David's conscience would not allow him to rest easy in a house of cedar, while the ark of God was sheltered only by tent flaps. The Lord responds to David's idea almost like a father um, talking to a child who's brought them a crayon coloring of a house. The Lord says, would you build me a house to dwell in? Yahweh goes on to say how he's never been especially concerned with getting a house for his earthly dwelling, but almost as a kind of blessed condescension the Lord deigns to accept the offering of a temple eventually constructed by David's son Solomon. And so we read in 1 Kings 8.11 how the glory of the Lord fills that house, a tremendous house, 
magnificently adorned to reflect the greatness of Israel's God. So for David and the faithful of God's people, the temple was a way of honoring the place the Lord had chosen to place his name, the place he had established to meet his people there on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. It's little wonder then that the temple would take on such intense significance for God's people, both religiously and politically. Uh, As often happens with monuments, the temple as a symbol took on a life of its own, similar to how we Americans think of the monuments scattered throughout Washington, D.C., or how Roman Catholics might think of St. Peter's Basilica. Well, back in 2013, Laura and I, young, carefree, and without the blessing of our precious children, Uh, we were able to make pilgrimage to some of those powerful monuments of the English church on my cross-cultural ministry practicum to London for divinity school. So as a new Anglican, I carefully outlined the places I hoped to visit. You know, St. Paul's Cathedral, Christ Church up in Oxford, the memorial to Latimer and Ridley. Um, And high up on the list, of course, was Westminster Abbey, That towering symbol of the English church, housing the shrine of St. Edward the Confessor, over 1,400 years old. And naive as I was, after we paid our overpriced admission and made our way through the entrance, I had expected some kind of encounter with holiness. Silly me. Instead, I followed the herd of tourists Uh, feeling as dry as all the graves that fill that building. The building was packed with people casually milling about the chapels and altars that had become so important to me, posing for pictures, sipping coffee. I half expected to see them uh, take some selfies with St. Edward the Confessor. I left that main building and I sat down in the cloister, feeling disoriented and deeply confused. I thought it would be a holy place. The facade had given every indication of being a place to meet God. But I found it hollow. I first discovered then what we will also see in our gospel passage, that the gold of the temple is worthless without faithfulness to the God of the temple. And the tested faith of His holy ones will outlive all the gold in the world. The gold of the temple is worthless without faithfulness to the God of the temple. And the tested faith of his holy ones will outlive all the gold in the world. Well, I would draw your attention this morning, if you have a a copy of God's word there, to our gospel passage, Luke chapter 21, beginning in verse 5. The passage begins with the commotion of Christ's followers pointing out the beauty of the temple's noble stones and offerings. St. Mark actually quotes them directly in his version in Mark 13. Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. The disciples were clearly taken in by their impressive surroundings, not unlike a fresh-faced seminarian in front of Westminster Abbey. But we might forgive them their amazement if we were to see Herod's temple for ourselves, built on the shambles of the second temple from Ezra and Nehemiah's day. Herod the Great had constructed a magnificent temple complex, 
that was meant to match Judean patriotism and a show of strength and beauty. In fact, the eastward-facing front of the temple was reportedly lined with gold, and so the sun would rise on it, and it would shine, and you could see it for miles around. Above that gold facade, there was pristine marble, carefully whitewashed by the priests to maintain its shine. Herod's magnificent temple gave every outward indication of holiness and glory. And so the disciples were probably voicing nothing but genuine patriotism and piety and commenting on the beautiful temple to Jesus. But our Lord Jesus, the priest and king, was also the prophet and prophesied regarding the temple that not one of its noble stones would be left upon another that would not be thrown down. This public statement by our Lord would become the closest thing to an accusation that would stick later at his trial. And in this way, our Lord fulfills the ministry of Jeremiah, who about six centuries earlier also announced the destruction of the temple from within its courts in Jeremiah 26. He goes into the temple and he announces that it will be destroyed if they don't repent. And so the the scripture says the priests and the prophets and all the people lay hold of him and say, you shall die. Why have you prophesied in this way? To which Jeremiah responds, the Lord sent me to prophesy against this house. Now therefore mend your ways and your deeds and obey the voice of the Lord your God. And the Lord will relent of the disaster he has pronounced against you. But they did not relent. And so the weeping prophet was cast out with everyone else so that the land might finally have its Sabbath. The gold of the temple is worthless without faithfulness to the God of the temple. And the tested faith of his holy ones will outlive all the gold in the world. I've often mentioned this story to others, though I'm not sure if I've ever mentioned it in the pulpit, of my first experience with an offering plate. Um, Our family was attending a Christian and Missionary Alliance in uh, church in Mariana, Florida. I believe it was the first Sunday that I had been brought in to sit in the service itself. It's one of my earliest uh, memories. So I'm experiencing a church service for the first time, and at some point the people begin passing this shining golden plate down the aisles. I get glimpses of this magical plate as it floats in and out amongst the people. It's getting closer and closer, and eventually it arrives, and there's this golden plate with a velvety, red velvet bottom, and scattered on top of it are these wonderfully crisp green dollar bills. I was overjoyed and deeply humbled to be offered a share in this bounty, and so I cheerfully plucked a single bill from the plate. I didn't want to be greedy, after all. It's my first Sunday. And in those 1.5 seconds before my mother realized what I'd done, I was sitting pretty. I was like, hey, church is all right. Okay, this isn't bad at all. I can live with this. Now, my second memory of the offering plate was very different, but still equally infuriating to my poor mother. This time, the plate came around. And I solemnly plunked a single copper penny in the plate. I sat back, ready to be received into the communion of the saints for such an offering. My mother didn't see it that way and scolded me for my disrespect until I explained to her how that morning in Sunday school we had heard the story of the widow's might. Mom, it's not me. I'm just trying to be like that widow. And that thankfully got me out of hot water. 
But it's this same scene of the widow's offering, and you look, if you look at our gospel passage, that immediately precedes um, the disciples' comments on the temple, where Jesus praises the widow's public offering of two small copper coins, all she had to live on. And then immediately afterwards, the disciples are falling all over themselves about how beautiful the temple is. But what's the difference between the widow's copper and the temple's gold? The difference is the faithfulness of a true heart. Note that the widow is still very much giving sacrificially, right? It's all she has to live on, after all. But it's an offering that no one will notice except the God of the widows. Only the God who sees saw those two precious coins. But lest we think our Lord's only complaint against the temple was its adornments, let us return to how the Lord first entered the temple on this visit to Jerusalem, a moment prophesied by Malachi in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? The Lord comes to his temple, and according to St. John, he makes a whip of cords to evacuate the temple courts, fulfilling the last verse of Zechariah chapter 14, verse 21, and there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. The money changers and merchants are ejected. Temple business is ground to a halt. When I was growing up, I thought this passage just meant that I had to wait until we were in the church parking lot before I could bring up my school's annual fundraiser. But this is about more than just doing business at church. In the tradition of all of Yahweh's prophets, the Lord himself comes to his temple to enact a prophetic rejection of how the temple was operating. The lucrative temple industry where the priority was no longer fidelity to Yahweh, but to churn out as many expensive sacrifices as possible to appease Yahweh. The priestly elite had by and large, not all, there's always a remnant, but by and large they had long since abandoned the sacrifice of a broken spirit and instead contented themselves with perfunctory mountains of goats, rams, and heifers. In fact, we read in Malachi how the priests were bringing polluted offerings, blind, lame, sick animals. They didn't even bother pretending that these sacrifices were an act of devotion. They thought it was all pointless, that it was all a joke, as we read in Malachi 3.14, where we hear them saying, it's vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? Ladies, this is like if your man shows up with flowers on your anniversary, but each and every single one of those flowers is dead. Not just a little wilted, you know, you got them on discount or something, but straight up rotting on the stem. What would those flowers tell you? They tell you something worse than if he just hadn't brought any flowers at all. It should not surprise us then that Yahweh says in Malachi, Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. And so one does come to shut the doors, the anointed one, 
the Lord himself. He rejects the pointless sacrifices and for a brief moment restores the temple to its original design. He makes it a place of teaching and healing, a house of prayer. And so the Lord shows that without faithfulness to him, without fidelity, true loyalty, allegiance to him, the river of blood that had been flowing from Zion's temple was really no better than the Tower of Babel. Just another monument to man's failed attempt to reach heaven on his own terms. The gold of the temple is worthless without faithfulness to the God of the temple. And the tested faith of his holy ones will outlive all the gold in the world. If ever, like me, you come to moments like these in the gospel, where Jesus comes to the temple and he just blows up, and you're like, whoa, whoa, what's going on? You feel like there's something you're missing, some part of the conversation you've missed out on. Might I suggest to you that section of God's word we call the Old Testament. The prophets in particular. For example, the cleansing of the temple seems to come out of nowhere until you read the four short chapters of Malachi. Malachi is a conversation as plain and straightforward as you can get between Yahweh and his priests. And here's how it begins. I have loved you, says the Lord. That's how it begins. I have loved you. Yeah, this is that Old Testament God of wrath and destruction we hear so much about, right? I have loved you. Before he made the prophetic scene in the temple, the Lord told them in Malachi of his love. And Malachi continues with this poignant back and forth between Yahweh and his priests. I have loved you, says the Lord. How have you loved us, they respond. You've wearied me, the Lord says. How have we wearied you, they respond. I no longer accept your offerings, the Lord says. Why not, they ask. Because you've been faithless, the Lord says. God's people had abandoned the Lord. They were worshiping other gods. Their prophets started talking for Baal. They stopped believing. They started mocking God. God doesn't see us. We can do what we want. They gave in to greed, to adultery, to murder, to theft. They began to swirl into that black hole of, of human sinfulness. And lest we in the new covenant become arrogant, remember the words of St. Paul in Romans 11. Do not be arrogant toward the branches, the natural branches, the Israelites. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. And then later in verse 20, do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Apart from Christ, the true vine, whether Jew or Gentile, none of us are safe from the whirlpool of our own sin. So in his infinite love, when we had fallen into sin and become subject to evil and death, when the Lord's beloved had gone mad and given herself to demons, the Lord came for her himself. He brought the intervention to the heart of their self-deception into the temple. He halted the system of bottomless animal sacrifice, which can never take away sins. And he offers himself, as we read in Hebrews 10, quoting Psalm 40, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. The high priest comes to the temple. He stretches out his own arms. He binds himself to the wood for the burnt offering. 
He has no need to continue the sacrificial system of dead works. Instead, he offers himself once for all. So that now his faithful ones can have confidence to enter the holy places by his blood, the blood of Jesus, as we read in Hebrews 10.20, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh that was torn. Beloved, since we have such a great high priest, let us draw near, no longer with the dead heart of the law, but with the true heart and full assurance of faith, holding fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. The gold of the temple is worthless without faithfulness to the God of the temple. So the Lord himself comes to the temple. He offers himself that now the tested faith of his holy ones cannot live all the gold in the world. Now for some of us, although we might not articulate it this way, this all sounds well and good, but it presents something of a problem. Because the attraction of the law is that it's predictable. I sin, I kill a goat, and I'm done. You have to forgive me. It's in the terms and conditions. Those who walk by the Spirit can no longer hide their hearts in the paperwork of the law. They must be laid bare. You must reveal, like W.H. Auden said, that all you have to love your crooked neighbor is your crooked heart. And being so naked brings a chill and not a little humiliation. But the only choice, beloved, we have in being laid bare is when. You can either shuffle off those priestly robes now to reveal the leprosy beneath, or you can wait for the revealing in the end when all will be exposed. I wonder if any of the children here have ever encountered a cicada shell. Has anyone seen a cicada shell? Yeah. They're awesome. So you're walking through the woods, you see this giant nasty bug on a tree, right? You first kind of, what is that? But you look closer, you poke it, it doesn't move, right? And soon you realize you can just pull it off and terrorize your siblings with it. It's pretty awesome. It's completely harmless, right? Well, the temple and its system of sacrifice had also become a kind of shell, a hollow simulation of David's devotion and piety so many centuries before. In his mercy, the Lord would not allow a dead thing to continue. Our adversary deals in death, but he is the giver of life. And so he left the temple behind. And as we see in Matthew and Mark, the conversation afterwards is actually held on the Mount of Olives, what is known as the Olivet Discourse. Coming to the Mount of Olives in this way actually fulfills prophecies of Ezekiel and Zechariah, where Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapters 10 through 11 sees the glory of the Lord leave the temple and stand on a mountain to the east of Jerusalem. The Mount of Olives is to the east. It's actually directly east from the front of the temple. And we read in Zechariah 14 verse 4, On that day his, Yahweh's feet, by the way, Yahweh has feet, apparently, shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley. It may have seemed to many that when Jesus was leaving the temple, it was just a troublesome Galilean preacher uh, wrapping up his tent revival. But in fact, that was Yahweh leaving the temple, leading his faithful ones out. For the only temple they would need from then on was the temple of his body, that is, the church. 
And having led them out, his call to them is a call to faithfulness and gospel witness in the midst of many tribulations. He says there will be wars, there will be earthquakes, famines, pestilence, terrors, great signs, impostors, liars, false teachers, persecutions. But did you notice, in the midst of all of it, opportunities. This will be your opportunity, he says in Luke 21.13, to bear witness. You won't even have family ties to fall back on anymore. You may face hatred all the way down and finally be killed, but not a hair of your head will perish. You can die and be safe. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. And finally, in both Ezekiel and Malachi, we see Yahweh taking note of the faithful. In Malachi, it's a book of remembrance for those who feared the Lord and esteemed His name. In Ezekiel chapter 9, it's a mark on the forehead for all who sign and groan over all the abominations that are committed in Jerusalem. Beloved, I'll end with this. Many of you, I know, have been sighing and groaning like righteous Lot in Sodom and Gomorrah for a long, long time. Don't give up. Don't grow weary. The Lord has marked you. He sees you. The Lord has placed you in His book. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. For the gold of the temple is worthless without faithfulness to the God of the temple. And the tested faith of His holy ones will outlive all the gold in the world. Glory to God alone. Amen.